everybody. Today I speak to Professor Margeert Vissers from the University of Otago Center for Free Radical Research. We talk about vitamin C. Yes, everybody's got an opinion about it. Is it expensive, pure or not? Can it cure cancer? You'll have to listen to find out. Welcome, Prof. Margeert Visser, uh, to Let's Hope the Weather Holds. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it's really nice to be here. Yes, good stuff. I if am I correct in saying you are uh, the principal investigator, associate dean for research at the Center for Free Radical Research at the University of Otago. I'm no longer the associate dean for research. Okay, what what has changed? So I dropped that. I dropped that out of my job description. <laughs> Okay, um, so we'll delete that. I've been doing that job for 13 years and um, and it was additional, you know, to to the science that I do and someone else's turn now. It was time okay. to give that job to someone else. Good. I didn't <laughs> they, they, they might be really happy to have that added to their job title or it might uh, scare them. So time yeah, will I'm, I guess. I'm not worried. <laughs> What is your main field of research at the moment in, in, in a nutshell? So, so I'm a, I trained as a biochemist. Okay. So that's a person who does laboratory science um, into understanding how our bodies work. And my, in my basic interest was um, white blood cells and the things they do in infection. And that led us um, into vitamin C. Um, because white blood cells have a lot of vitamin C and we know we need vitamin C for our immune system. Yeah. And so now I would describe myself as um, a cancer biologist, an immunologist, a vitamin C biochemist, um, and, a, and an oxidative stress biochemist. So... So we these these fields kind of merge um, in on top of each other. Okay, I think we're going to delve a bit into uh, probably each one of those those topics. Uh, the The reason I'm speaking to you today is is uh, because I think I read or heard uh, some of your work, and um, I've had discussions with family members and doctors about vitamin C, and I'd have one doctor tell me, mm, I think you should take more vitamin C or, you know, for your immune system. And then another doctor tell me, no, that, that's nonsense. Um, it's just expensive urine. And, and then with, 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 even with family members who are in the scientific field, having these discussions and, and people get uh, quite worked up about it. So why do you think um, people get up very worked up about the, the topic like vitamin C? Well I, well, I think what you've described is exactly what the problem is um, or what the issue is here. So, so nobody doubts that we need vitamin C for our survival. But the question, since we discovered that, um, you know, over 100 years ago, almost 100 years ago now, that this was the compound that prevented scurvy. Since we discovered that, there has been one single underlying question, how much vitamin C do we need to yeah. take in every day? And after a hundred years, there was no consensus on that answer. 
So some people will will answer you to with the with the amount that's required to fend off scurvy, which is the deadly disease that you know will kill you within months, weeks of getting it. So that's the thing we, we want to avoid at the very extreme. But beyond that, there's how much, and, and that's a very small amount. It's a very small amount of vitamin C that you need to prevent you getting scurvy. So something like 10 to 20 milligrams a day. So you might get that from one apple, say. So, but how much, but, but that's to fend off deficiency. So how much do we need for optimal health? And how, and how much do we need under different health circumstances? And this is where the discussion, where there is no consensus, um, although it's coming, because we, A, for a long time, we didn't know what vitamin C was actually doing. Then we started to get a sense of what it was doing and that led to a little more kind of insight into how much we need. Now we understand a lot better how it, how it gets delivered around our body and that's given us a lot more insight into how much we need and how much we need. And then we've got a much better insight into consumption by our body. So how much we use every day and that varies under different circumstances, under different health circumstances. So therefore, to, there is no single answer to that question of how much do we need? And this is why the conversation is so complicated and continues to really go round and round in circles with some people saying, get everything you need. You know, everybody's got everything they need. We don't see scurvy. And so, you know, you don't need to supplement and then there are other people who, you know, are kind of at a way other extreme who, um, you know, invoke huge amounts of vitamin C. And in between that, we're getting a more reasoned approach now with understanding that in different circumstances, we need to adapt our intake. Yeah. So there's not, there's not, a, single, <laughs> there's not a single answer to your question. Okay, well, but that's... That's great. The reason people argue about it is because actually it seems like a simple question, but actually it's a very complicated answer. I, I, I think one of the primary things that the general public uh, um, think of when they think vitamin C is the, the getting a cold or getting, getting flu. Um, yeah. And there's been many myths or there's been science that's been um, uh, debunked. Uh, uh, being like you won't get a cold, but then it was proven you can still get a cold if you have high vitamin C intake. But then research that I, I don't know if it was you or one of your colleagues did uh, showed uh, how vitamin C could could stop, you know, the worsening of, of flu uh, or some of the things. What, what, is, what is that argument? What, what was the argument in the beginning and where does the science sit now? So... So, so that well, we'll call it a discussion. So, um, so that so that discussion um, um, is is around. So there are two things with um, colds and flus, which are like common respiratory illnesses, um, and and one is about prevention of getting it, and the other is about speed of recovery time. 
And the first, the earliest questions around um, vitamin C were if it's boosting your immune system, will it prevent the common cold? Because this was a, you know, it's a major burden on society um, with, you know, in terms of an economic burden and a health burden as well. And so uh, in the 1970s, so this was, the work was done around the 1970s by, um, particularly by a man called Linus Pauling, who championed vitamin C research. Um, and he published a book on, on vitamin C and respiratory diseases or vitamin C and the common cold. And immediately after that, dozens and dozens and dozens of studies were done on thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And they were mostly supplementary studies. So they gave, took a big population, gave them a vitamin C supplement, and then checked to see how many people got colds. But the problem with those studies, and they didn't really show anything. The problem, with, and so some people said, well, so vitamin C doesn't prevent you getting a, a, a cold. But the problem with those studies is they supplemented, they didn't, they didn't look in people who had low vitamin C to see whether more vitamin C would give you protection. They looked in everybody. And, and in the whole population, most of the population is actually okay for vitamin C levels. And so you're supplementing people, you're giving them more intake, but you're not affecting their body levels at all. And so therefore, when the supplement didn't do anything and it ended up in the urine, then they say this is expensive urine. And indeed it is yes. under those circumstances. Yes. But that does not mean that if your vitamin C level is low, that you won't be more susceptible to getting colds and flus. Yeah. And this seems to be the case. So populations that are stressed, so they looked in particular in some of their subpopulations, so marathon runners, people who were, who were working in the Arctic, so, you know, who, whose bodies were under stress and presumably whose consumption was increased. If they supplemented, then they were prevented from getting colds. You could see a difference in that population. So the question should not be, does a supplement stop you from getting a cold. The question should be, does optimal vitamin C status prevent you from getting a cold? So if your vitamin C status is optimal, does that give you protection compared with if it's suboptimal? Now, unfortunately, all those tens and hundreds of thousands of people who, were, who were, took part in these studies they didn't measure their vitamin C status in any of them. <laughs> and so, so I, I don't want to think about how much money was spent to come up with an answer that, that wasn't worth anything. So, you know, we, so, so where we're a little more savvy now is that people now screen, you know, participants when they come in. So we're now looking at, you know, not does a, not this simple question, does a supplement stop you getting a cold? It's if I optimize my vitamin C intake, if I optimize my vitamin my body's vitamin C levels, is my immune system better off? And and there's quite a lot of evidence that that is the case. Okay. And so 
that is, you know, so it, so once again, a simple question, a complex answer. If, as far as I understand, um, it also uh, optimal vitamin C levels, if I'm using the correct terminology, will stop or no, maybe not stop, but will delay or will in a way prevent um, something like uh, a flu going over into pneumonia. Um, I don't know if, I, if I'm putting it correctly. What, what, what's the research on that? Well, there are, um, well the, there's, there's, there are very few studies that have, that have looked at that. So, so there, you know, people do these kind of what we call a meta-analysis, so where they look at all the studies. And so, and, and they get published in a single review and they, they're often sponsored by an organization called Cochrane. And so there was a Cochrane review on pneumonia, um, which essentially showed from the few studies that had been carried out, that if you had a cold or, or a flu, that, and, you, and you were given a vitamin C supplement, that that com almost completely protected you from going on and getting pneumonia. So there were almost no cases of pneumonia in the vitamin C supplemented group. Hmm. The second thing that that's that, although this, there are few studies, is looking at outcomes in pneumonia. So people with pneumonia, if you gave them a vitamin C supplement, then they did not die. Okay. So, you know, so we're currently, you know, trying to get these studies going again because the mortality outcome is actually massive. And, and you know, preventing a lot of people die with, from pneumonia. And so preventing people from dying um, from pneumonia is actually quite easy, simply preventing them from dying. It's yeah. probably quite, um, you know, not too radical uh, a thing to do um, but it is um, but that is you know there's some nice preliminary work coming out in that we know now that you know people with who are acutely ill especially with respiratory illnesses their vitamin c levels plummet you know these people end up very low and um, and so if you supplement you're basically restoring a lot of normal body functions that help them recover Okay. So, I I I immediately want to ask you about COVID, but I'm not going to. I think in ten years we can speak again, and then we can there will be be research on vitamin C and COVID. I I actually want to. Do, do they know why the, the the influence on on specifically not getting pneumonia or not dying? What what was the role that vitamin C played? Well, well, we think it plays many roles, and 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 we think it's um, it's this is tied in with, with with its capacity to to support the function of many enzymes that control blood pressure, for example, that control the the kinds of um, activity of white blood cells that make these signaling molecules called cytokines that, um, you know, so it's involved in so very many aspects of the immune response and, and recovery from, an, from, from a severe, you know, immune event that there's many facets that require vitamin C to, to support the function 
Yeah. And so we're so it's more than one thing. So you can't just say, oh, you know, it stops this particular thing from yes. working. There's like many aspects of our body function that are supported by vitamin C. That if the vitamin C runs out, then those things are not are not working well. And so we're starting to hone in on some of them in particular. But the more we look, the more we find actually. So we think that there are probably dozens of things it's doing. Um, uh, uh, I think two questions that I probably should have asked near the beginning was, how do you get vitamin C where you, where you want it to be? Is there a role, like, what does the body do? Or is there a role that I can play with taking additional supplements? Uh, like, how do you get vitamin C where it needs to be? And okay, is so, that the right question also? <laughs> yeah, no, 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 that's a good question. So, so just to start, just to start, all animals, all animals, have vitamin C. Yeah. So, so most animals make their own vitamin C in the liver. Yeah. So they don't need to take it in through the gut. In fact, what we've learned is that, you know, if your dog or your your horse eats an apple, you know, say your horse eats an apple, that the vitamin C in that apple is not actually doesn't actually end up being taken into the horse because the horse doesn't need to do that it's making vitamin c in its liver and so very little of that ends up you know in in the animal we have lost that capacity to make vitamin c in our liver and so we need to get it from our diet so we need to eat it and and when we eat it it's very water soluble so it almost doesn't matter what form you take it in so if you take it in a tablet form or anything that comes from food all the way along our gut, there are transporting molecules for vitamin C. So it's taken up really rapidly at, and all, all along our alimentary canal. So, so normally, you know, everything that you eat will be taken up into, into your, and it ends up in your bloodstream then. And your bloodstream is the delivery mechanism because it's not doing anything in your bloodstream except going places and so from the bloodstream it will get every cell in your body has these transporters as well so we'll suck it up from the blood into the cell and keep it in the cell and we'll take up as much as it needs yeah. so every cell in the body all our different organs take up different amounts of vitamin c the brain is very high. Some levels of the brain, the pituitary is really high. The eye, the retina in the eye is, is really high. Um, some of our, um, um, like we have adrenal glands just on top of the kidneys. They're extraordinarily high in vitamin C. So all our organs have our white blood cells are very high. All our organs take up as much vitamin C as they need. And we think that's indicative of what they're doing with it. So the particular functions of those cells and does is vitamin C necessary to support those functions. And so from the bloodstream, it goes into the cells as much as it needs. As it passes through the kidney and your blood's filtered through the kidney, you know, hundreds of times a day, as it passes through the kidney, it's all filtered out 
And then if your blood level is low, it'll be taken up back into the bloodstream again. So nothing will end up in your urine yeah. unless you are set, unless your blood, your blood level is about 100 micromolar. And then everything, if your blood's at that level, then that's enough to get, deliver enough to your tissues as much as they need, and we call that saturation. Yeah. And so if you take in any more at that point, that ends up in the toilet. Okay. So, so your body will regulate the amount that it needs. Yeah. I kind of refer to it a little bit like a dry sponge. You know, I use this kind of analogy that if you have a dry sponge in a dish of water and you pour water on it, the water will all soak into the sponge and there'll be nothing left on the outside. If you keep on pouring water, then eventually the sponge will just be sitting in a pond yeah. and and no, the sponge won't be getting any wetter. And that's exactly how our bodies function. So with, with respect to taking up vitamin C. So your tissues will take it up until they're saturated and then and then they'll discard any, any more. And if, and if there's a high rate of consumption, so for example, that tissues are using it, then they'll, then they'll just take up more to replenish that. And so the aim is to keep, to keep your blood supply supplied so that it can reach the tissues where it needs to be. Okay. So we're trying to keep this balance of in and out in, in kind of a regular balance but we don't need to be like too fussy about it because your body's going to regulate that. So, you know, if some ends up in your urine, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine because then you don't need it in essence. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, the saturation level then depends on, um, so on intake versus usage versus um, excretion. Why is saturation important? When, sat when your body is saturated, each cell has taken up all the vitamin C that it needs. And your blood supply has been able to reach every cell. Okay. So as your blood level drops, the levels in your cells also drop. And so if your cells are dependent on a on a vitamin C for a particular function, then what we're finding is that those things are no longer functioning as well as they can. They might be functioning okay, but they're not functioning as well as they can. And they're not functioning like as, as well as what we might consider optimal. Okay. So what we see, and the reason we think this is important is that in animals that make their own vitamin C, they keep their blood level at saturation level no matter what. When they get sick, their bodies make more vitamin C. So, so we think there's probably a reason that biology works like that because these things don't usually happen by, by chance. And so for an animal to keep to keep it, you know, they work, their bodies work hard to keep their body, at, to keep the, the level at saturation. So we think this is probably important for us as well. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned earlier that, that in some of the tests, uh, let's say marathon athletes uh, would respond to, um, 
to vitamin C. So, so is it the moment you put more stress than normal? And I know normal is now <laughs> normal. We can discuss what normal is, but if you're putting more stress on your body with exercise specifically, uh, would you then use more? Would you need more? Or is it only extreme exercise? Hence mentioning a marathon runner and not uh, someone who just runs five kilometers three times a week. Well, 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 it's, well, it's probably a slope, um, those, um, that, that response. So, so I think you might see a massive effect in a marathon runner because they are undergoing extreme exercise. But we know that any, that any form of exercise, you know, you, you breathe more, yeah. you use more oxygen, your body's risk, you know, things are, things are happening more rapidly. Every time an oxygen is a thing that consumes vitamin C. So, so, you know, if your body's under a more oxidative load, you may use more vitamin C than, than normal. Please don't think that exercise is a bad thing. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's a good, it's a good thing. Um, but, 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 but yes, it's possible that, that, that you're consuming a little more vitamin C when you're exercising and so the more extreme the exercise gets probably the more you need to boost that okay um but the the exercise slope is probably quite quite low quite small yeah um the sickness slope is much steeper so when you it seems that when you get sick, and particularly if you get sick with a respiratory illness or something that's causing a big oxidative load, your vitamin C levels will drop rapidly. And and there's dozens of studies showing this now that that if we take patients who are you know sick with many illnesses um, and just measure their vitamin C status, you know when they walk through the door, most of them. Are well below well below saturation, and a significant proportion can be approaching deficiency. Um, so that is a problem. And then, if you start supplementing them, there will obviously be some improvement. I'm not saying it will cure them, but there will be some improvement to body functions at least. Or is that too random a statement to make? Um, well, we think that. We think we think that, that that that's likely. It's it's important here hard to say that surprisingly little has been done in this area. Okay. Um, and and you know you think we would know this by now, but surprisingly little has actually been you know tightly proven. But yes, it is definitely starting to look that way. Look that way. Um, uh, I, I I think people understand money and if you can show someone like a government they'll save money if everyone is on saturation level they might they might invest more into research i don't know if that's true could you just explain oh, i wish that were true <laughs> <laughs> that's probably been your fight for the past couple of of years could could you um, or your challenge your challenge um, so you mentioned oxidative stress can you just explain that to myself and to listeners who might not uh, understand. So if you have a pulmonary illness, there's more oxidative stress and it then uses more vitamin C. Uh, how does that work? So, um, so the major, so if you have, if you have a pulmonary illness, like, you know, like, like a, 
like the flu or a cold or pneumonia or, you know, something like that that's affecting the lungs. It's an infection, essentially. In yeah. fact, all infections are, are oxidative, and they are oxidative because the white blood cells that come to fight that infection generate oxidants to kill the infected the infective particle be it a bacteria or a virus so they and they generate a lot of that and so that a consumes oxygen but generates these reactive molecules that then consume vitamin c so well vitamin c is one of the first targets for that because it's so easily oxidized so so you start to, in, in fighting off the infection, you also start consuming more vitamin C than you normally would. Okay. And so every time, in fact, vitamin C's function involves it regulating oxidative reactions. So in its normal day-to-day -day function, it's also being consumed, So which is why we need to take it in every day. But under conditions of illness, these white blood cells, and there are millions and millions and millions of them come in to, to fight off the infection, they create a collateral damage in that process. And vitamin C is one of the first targets okay. that they hit. And so you need to replenish that. So they're basically using up your supply. Um, I've got these two bottles here with me. The one is a Neutralife vitamin C, 500 milligram, which I bought after I read some of your research. Um, <laughs> and But this one says low acid. Um, and that's, that's something I've observed lately that a lot of the new vitamin Cs are low acid. Why yeah. would something like low acid vitamin C be on the market? Well, if you, if you buy vitamin C tablets, so vitamin C is an acid, so it's a ascorbic acid. And if you take um, like a, you know, 500 milligrams is a reasonable dose, but sometimes people take grams of vitamin C. So you'd be taking into your, into your digestive system an acid. Yeah. So more acid in a tablet than you would get from uh, eating a kiwi fruit or eating an orange. Yeah. And so that acid can cause a digestive upset. So... So people, well, that or it can just cause loose bowels and, you know, people can get like just a gut upset um, from the acid. Okay. And so when, when bottles say low acid, it usually means that they've derivatized the vitamin C into a salt and so, or similar. And so it's not in its free acid form. In that tablet and so it's easier on the gut presumably and so this is a it's a marketing point um, mm -hmm. for the for the for the vitamin c but yeah. but presumably it should be less um problematic but normally people don't have major issues with taking vitamin c tablets unless they're taking gram quantity okay and with this would would um uh, there be because it's been slightly changed with their with the effect would it still be as effective yes 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 in fact in fact once it's in fact once vitamin c enters 
you know, is circulating in your bloodstream, say it's no longer a free acid. Okay. So, so the acid, the acid part of the molecule, the, the hydrogen falls off and it becomes a scorbate. So instead of being a scorbic acid, it's a scorbate at, at the pH that, that circulates in our bodies. So, so very little free acid is, is around. So it, you know, it normally exists as an acid, but as soon as it's in a biological fluid, it splits off. And then, and then it's fine. So, having having said that, um, people with with uh, who struggle with, let's say, arthritis that that has to do somewhat with inflammation. In essence, vitamin C intake wouldn't negatively affect them, or am I missing the mark? It shouldn't. Okay, it shouldn't. It shouldn't. Then I've got another. It doesn't have any toxicity profile. Okay. Um, it's the one substance for which no toxic level has ever been reached. Oh, yeah. We're going to get one of my next questions actually has to do with that just because of, of levels, but I'll, I'll get to that now. I've got another bottle here. Um, it says uh, cold sore complex. Uh, it seems my entire family suffers from cold sores. It has lysine, sorbic acid, vitamin C, and zinc. Now, the, the prime thing uh, I bought it for was the zinc. Why would they include ascorbic, uh, ascorbic acid with this zinc uh, just to boost the immune system, or is there some some? Yes, uh, that uh, that um, so zinc is 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 another component that is helpful for the immune system, yeah. and so often people will combine vitamin C and zinc as as an immune um, preventative, um, and the two things you know do seem to complement each other. So, um, you know, I mean, vitamin C deficiency when you're sick is only one deficiency that you have <clears throat> or that you might have. You know, there are many things that, that, that support the immune system. And zinc in particular seems to be um, quite influential. So quite often you'll see the two things um, being sold together. Okay. Um, my, my sister farms in Botswana she and her husband, and they have a friend who has cancer. I don't know what cancer he has, but he uh, is, as far as I understand, intravenously or in liquid form uh, uh, orally, taking very high doses of vitamin C. And there's a lot of emotions around this discussion also, because some people say vitamin C is a cure for cancer. Um, and I mean, this you do around the barbecue fire and you have these discussions and then no one really has any, you know, science to back it up. They just read something and, but everybody's read something. Um, yeah. uh, there, there is a lot of research, obviously what you're doing also in, in, in cancer. Um, what role does it, does it play? And, and uh, is there a role that, that you hope it will play in future but maybe what what role does it play what have you have you discovered or what has your research shown well this is you know it's a very emotional topic um for people because um you know cancer is a very challenging disease and um and we're constantly looking for answers and the the idea that vitamin c can be um useful as a cancer treatment has has been around since the 1970s or earlier. Um, when, 
when some studies were published that suggested that giving people intravenous, so vitamin C by infusion, um, prolonged um, their life. So at the time, there was no claim that it was a cure for cancer. Um, those studies were refuted by, um, by the Mayo Clinic, who tried to repeat them, but gave the patients oral vitamin C. So the same amount, it was 10 grams that they were giving. And they gave patients this as a tab in, a, in tablet form. They didn't see any effect um, in the tablet form. And so an enormous argument started um, between the proponents of, you know, both you know, from both sides. Meantime, many patients, many cancer patients, being, you know, quite desperate for something, continued to have these vitamin C infusions. And some case studies were published that showed the cancer apparently disappearing. And, but few, they're few and far between. And so they, you know, they the story never went away, really. And one of the main reasons it was floundering was that we didn't have any, any function that we could ascribe to vitamin C that would suggest that would, it would be a good idea for cancer. And it's not until the last you know, 15, to 20, 15, 15 years or so that we've realized two things. One is that when you give vitamin C by infusion, the way it's delivered, the, the speed at which it's delivered to your body is quite different from if you take it orally. If you take it orally, your gut uptake regulates that intake very closely and you can't achieve the same delivery rush if you like. Secondly is that delivering it and by infusion and delivering it in that way can, can change the way that vitamin C can affect your, your system and can change the way things it does in cancer cells particularly. And so people started looking at it again, you know, thinking, well, maybe there is something to that. In the meantime, a number of mechanisms have also been realized that, well, this could be important in cancer or this could be important in cancer. Now, I think over the last 20 years, we've honed in on some of those mechanisms. And there's a kind of a consensus coming out now that, well, those very early days for this, but vitamin C will not cure a cancer. I think we can almost definitively say that now. But it can help to manage some cancers. And that will depend on the type of cancer and not only the type of cancer, but the genetic type of each cancer. So different mutations can cause cancer. Some patients will have one mutation and their cancer will advance very rapidly. Someone else with the same cancer will have a different set of mutations and their disease will advance more slowly. Yeah. And so, those different mutations, some of them are very susceptible to vitamin C intervention. And you may slow those cancers a lot. And so we're starting to identify the circumstances under which that, that might happen. That will be for a subset of patients, not for all patients. Okay. So 
it's becoming a little bit clearer. I think with respect to people, you know, doing this, and lots of people do do it, you know, go and get vitamin C infusions, what we do see almost without fail is that those people experience a better quality of life. And so because their, because their vitamin C levels are very low, usually because of their illness, when they're given this vitamin C boost, they feel a lot better. It may or may not slow their cancer, but, but uh, the rest of their body functions are supported. And so many people, you know, get, um, they feel better for this. And, and, and therefore they think it's working on their cancer. It may not be working on their cancer. It may work on mood. But it might be, you know, supporting other functions. So it's 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 complicated. We can't tell yet exactly which patients are going to benefit. We think if some patients will benefit a lot, that will be a small subset of patients. Um, but you know, so we're we're getting a little bit closer to to being able to say, you know, give better advice, but. But it's still very early days. But but so there are two questions for cancer patients, I think. One is, but just will you experience a quality of life? Or secondly, can we can we improve the the um, the way your cancer is responding to its current treatment? Um, and can we slow its growth? So so those and and what what we don't know. For, in order to achieve those benefits is how much vitamin C should be given. You know, people are having infusions of huge amounts of vitamin C. We don't know that those huge amounts are necessary. We know that people do this because they, they can tolerate it very well. Um, but there's no information on how, what the optimal dose would be, um, whether, you know, so... A whole lot more work needs to be done in this area, but we're definitely moving to thinking there are there are things of interest to um, to look at. As as far as I understand, there was some research on um, tumors and that um, uh, aggressive tumors and benign tumors show different levels of vitamin C. Is that correct, or is that something that still? needs to be researched um well well no well no we have we've um so that's our work i think that 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 you're referring to so um not many people have looked in a tumor to see what its levels are its vitamin c levels um but we have done that and we have found we've looked in four different tumor models now um so with samples that have been given by people whose tumors have been removed by surgery um, and we've found that the more aggressive the tumour, the lower its vitamin C level is. And so we think that that is because an aggressive tumour usually is a very disorganised structure and its blood vessels are really poor. So it doesn't deliver oxygen around the tumour very well. And also it doesn't deliver vitamin C around the tumor very well. So there are regions of that tumor that have low vitamin C levels. And we know that low vitamin C levels in a tumor can, can result in increased 
activity of a protein that makes the tumor grow fast. So vitamin C in a tumor is an off switch. And, and if it's not there, then, then you know, the tumor can accelerate more quickly. Um, so, so we're seeing that more aggressive tumors have lower vitamin C levels. And we think to deliver enough vitamin C to those tumors, we do need to deliver a lot more vitamin C to the body than it would normally have. Okay. Was there any studies done about the whatever a patient's um, historic vitamin C intake was pre that cancer, or was this just looking specifically at the tumor and there can be no link between how a person consumed vitamin C? Yeah, and we, but we don't, we don't, for those, those are historical samples that, 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 so they've been donated by people over a period of 13 years. And, and they're just donated at the point of surgery. So we don't have the information from, from the donor person um, what their vitamins or even what their blood level vitamin C was. But we do see a big range in the tumours. And so we think that that is probably reflects the person's status generally. So... Um, but even within that range, the high-grade tumors are worse off. But over the tumors, generally, we see, you know, a tenfold difference between some tumors and others. Okay. What of your work specifically excites you the most? Uh, are you hoping to see a breakthrough in or, or uh, yeah, is there something that you think this, this is the next big thing or, or is there something that you feel you could accelerate the pace that you're studying at? Like, is there something like that in your specific research? Well, we are, um, so we're focusing on the cancer story um, to, to a large degree. I have a colleague who's looking at the infectious diseases aspect um, of that. I think both have very um, exciting um, impact in the short to medium term. So, um, so for the cancer story, I think there are some, you know, we're, we're, we're understanding a couple of mechanisms that are very important for cancer that we know vitamin C is critical for, then we're getting pretty excited about being able to, to manipulate those cancers so that they create a therapeutic window for the doctors to come in with another treatment. So we're looking at, you know, and so leukemias are, are one cancer. So blood cancers um, look like, you know, there's a significant subset of patients with blood cancers who may be very responsive to vitamin C therapy. So we're hoping to look in patients like that soon. Um, some other cancers, um, like breast cancer, um, is um, those cancers are very dependent on the other function of um, vitamin C, which is the hypoxia-inducible factor regulation. And that's, you know, that's a very strong driver in breast cancer. And so being able to manipulate that activity would be um, very beneficial for breast cancer outcomes, we think. So, you know, so we're on the cusp of, um, of nailing the mechanisms 
and 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 as we do that to determine you know just how would you if you were to incorporate this into the clinic into a clinical setting how would you mesh it with um, the current treatments because I truly don't think it's ever going to be a, it'll ever be a standalone treatment yeah uh, like a holistic part of a holistic treatment it's 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 something that we need to mesh with all the current tools that we have um, and we need to and for that we need to understand how it works and how to use it so just like any other treatment that that comes into the clinic so I think that's the most exciting aspect of, of, of what we're doing. You know, we've been working towards this for, I don't know, 15 years. And, <laughs> and, um, and, and we, you know, our hypothesis is still alive, as we say. So all the, all the tests and mechanisms and models that we've put it through, you know, it's still there. So um, we haven't been able to shoot it down yet. So um, just what as a scientist you should be doing. So um, it's, it's still alive and we think, um, you know, we're getting close to understanding better the circumstances in which it might be useful. And infectious diseases, what, what, what's the link there? Well, with infectious diseases, I think we, it's, that's a matter of, of dose of how much do people need under different circumstances, and so just understanding what a, what a normal intake should be. If you're you know if you have a highly infectious disease or you've had something that's been going on for a long time, um, how much vitamin C should you need to just help that resolve to help? And so you know for the common cold it might be. You know, one of your 500 milligram tablets, or you know, something like that, additional per day. Um, if you were ill in hospital with pneumonia or sepsis, or you know, one of these really, you know, highly dangerous um, infectious illnesses, then it seems that you do need, you know, grams. People, those people need to be given grams per day in order to maintain their plasma level. Yeah. And and we think that the you know the outcomes can be improved for those patients if they do that. It's a very simple thing to do, um, and it's something that you should do at the beginning and not wait till the patient's at death's door. Okay, yeah. Yeah, you shouldn't think last resort vitamin C because then it's no. then too late. You're really asking a lot of the vitamin C at that point. <laughs> they might feel better near the end, but they might not. Not, it might not make it. Yeah. Um, I think I think that's that that's it. Thanks. You answered a lot of the questions I had, and I hope, hope when I'm standing next to a barbecue fire, um, I can just say, wait, guys, just listen to the podcast. I'm not gonna give an opinion, but the expert is going to give an opinion. Um, I think it's it's really I, I think the um no, no, thank you. I, I think, I think the takeaway um, message is, is that in order to um, answer that question, you know, how much do you need um, to come back to where we started? In order to answer that question, we actually have to measure levels in people. Yeah. And this is something that is almost never done. Yeah. 
And so, you know, rather than arguing back and forth, this patient needs it or doesn't need it, just measure their level. And yep. if they're deficient, give them some. Yeah. You know, so it's very simple. There's, there's, sorry, I, I know we basically said goodbye, but yeah. does the message trickle down to the general practitioner out there, the general doctor who, because does that message get through to them or, or are they difficult to reach? Um, it's, I, think the, I think the system is complicated by the amount of um, anecdotal information that flies around, you know, and, and, it, and, and the impression that people have that this is old news and we know all about it. You know, there's a lot of new news yeah. about this and much better understanding. And so just, you know, once we get over that hurdle, I think it will be so much simpler for everybody. I think that's a good note to end on as a, as a weekend athlete. I'll, uh, I'll definitely make sure I don't put my body under stress without supplementing. And I hope a lot of other people get that, get that message. Uh, well, just remember always food first as well. Thanks. We, I, that was the one question I wanted to ask. Um, but yeah, I also believe in food first. And uh, always. Uh, I'm always sad when the kiwi season, kiwi fruit season ends. Right. <laughs> because, because that's one of my favorite methods for intake. So, yeah, well, yeah, can't go better, can't get better. <laughs> thank you, and uh, uh, I appreciate it. And we might talk again uh, uh, soon, okay? Okay.